True Gay Crime contains coarse language, adult themes, and content that is violent and disturbing. If at any time you feel you need help, please refer to the toll-free crisis lines in the show notes. Welcome to another episode of True Gay Crime. I'm your host, Patrick Morano. And on today's episode, we cover what prosecutors described as a gay sex-driven killer who fantasized about raping, photographing, and strangling young men a guy who was convicted of one murder but has been linked to over a dozen other murders in what came to be known as the Hog Trail Murders. But first, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, something you can do that would really help me out is to rate and review this podcast. Listen, if this is not the first episode you've heard, that means you've come back for more, which kind of means that you're into it, which is wonderful, and I love you for it. And you know what you can do to really help me out is just go on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to where you see the little stars, tap as many stars as you can possibly tap, and then write a cute little review. I'll be forever grateful. Another thing you can do that really helps me out is just tell a friend. If you're liking this podcast, you probably know somebody who would also like it. And getting the word out there is primo important for me to continue doing this podcast. Also, guess what? I just got my True Gay Crime tank top delivered this week, and it fits like a gem. I get tons of compliments. I can personally guarantee that if you pick up a True Gay Crime t-shirt or any piece of merchandise, that you will instantly be more attractive and more popular than you are right now. Money back guarantee. My social calendar is full. If you want this to be you, you can simply go to the link in the show notes of this episode and get your own true gay crime merchandise. Okay, if you're a friend of the podcast, then you remember the episode of the nail, the London nail bomber, David Copeland. Well, imagine my surprise and delight. Yesterday, when I was on Netflix and I saw the Netflix special Nail Bomber Manhunt. I was like, oh my god, I just covered this. So it's so fresh in my mind. And I watched the episode. I have to say, when you see the visuals that go along with the story, and you already know the story, but you see the actual visuals that go along with it, it's really quite disturbing. So I suggest if you listened to the Nail Bomb, the London Nail Bomber episode that I put out with David Copeland, then you should go to Netflix and watch the Nail Bomber episode Manhunt. I just want to read you like a little portion of some dialogue that was happening because they actually interviewed David Copeland. Okay, so this is David speaking with an investigator. This is the investigator. Have you got a problem with gays then? To which David says, yeah, I have. Why? I'm just homophobic. You know, I just hate them. Yeah, but why? I don't know. You just do. Well, but there has to be a reason. I got a thing about homosexuals. I chose the gays because I hate them. So, like, the investigator is really trying to get to, like, well, why? Well, why do you hate him? Because when he hit up, you know, the black community and the Bengali community there, it was a, it was specifically race-targeted because he thinks that you know, he's a he's a Nazi, so he thinks, you know, white supremacy, and he thinks immigrants are ruining Great Britain, and he thinks that they're taking their jobs, blah, blah, blah. So there's reasons. However fucked up they are, there's reasons. But the investigator here is basically like, well, but, but why do you hate the gays? And he just doesn't have a reason. He's like, well, I just do. 
So the investigator says, and you can hear the investigator say, the tape doesn't pick this up, but when we ask you about gays, you have to close your eyes. And you seem quite intense there, David. To which David replies, I'm completely straight. Don't worry about that. Because David really picked up on what the investigator was saying was basically like, but why do you hate the gays so much? And of course, your first you know, thought is, well, this guy is gay himself. He just hates himself. So he hates gays. He sees gays, you know, out and it reminds him of who he really is. So he hates himself. So whether or not that's true, we don't know. But the investigator was obviously pushing him, pushing buttons and trying to see, but why? And he honestly doesn't even have a reason why he hates gays. So whether or not David Copeland is gay himself and he just couldn't accept it and he just hates himself or He's just brainwashed by the whole Nazi ideology and was just like, well, we hate this, 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 and this, you know, gays included. So, I mean, I'm not going to question it. That's just, you know, our mission statement is just we hate all these people. So what? we'll never know. We'll never know. And frankly, I hope he's not gay because I don't want him on my team. Also, in the Netflix special, they talk about the BMP, the the political party that um, John Tyndall, if you remember, John Tyndall was the leader of that r- super right-wing party. So when I was doing the research, I was like, oh, God, this guy is so right-wing, so conservative, whatever. But it really didn't, you know, get to the how intensely racist, homophobic, Hitler-like that this man really was. When you watch the the Netflix special, you're like, holy shit, this guy is like super Hitler. It was just, he's really disgusting and hateful. So it's definitely worth a look. He's very, he actually says, let's put the great back in Britain. Doesn't that sound exactly like make America great again? I mean, similarities. Also, it was super creepy because I didn't realize um, in the story, but in the Netflix special, David talks about, you know, scoping out the different pubs, the different gay pubs of which one he was going to hit up and then choosing the Admiral pub. And then the day of he actually goes in. Well, obviously, he has to deposit the nail bomb, but he goes in and he actually orders a drink and sits at the bar for a while. And he's looking around and he's thinking to himself, these are all the people that are going to be affected by this bomb. That for me was a really fucked up moment. That is creepy because it's one thing to hurt a bunch of people that you blindly don't know or see but to be sitting amongst the people in the bar watching them laugh and drink and talk knowing what's going to happen and how you are going to be responsible for their injuries slash deaths that's fucked up this guy or god i hope he never ever ever gets out Okay, let's get back to this episode. This one, we're talking about the Hog Trail murders. My sources for this episode are Wikipedia, Murderpedia, and I watched a bunch of YouTube videos which were fascinating. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end after the story. But here we go. Here is the story of Daniel Conahan and the Hog Trail murders. It's March 1995 in Fort Myers, Florida. David Payton is a loner. He never really fit in with what society asked him, and he certainly didn't follow the path his parents expected him to. He was a free soul, traveling where the wind took him. 
Unfortunately for him, one day, the wind put him in direct path with Daniel Conahan. As David walked down the deserted road, he was about to give up. I mean, what's the use of hitchhiking, he thought, on a road with no cars? Then suddenly, in answer to his prayers, cresting the hill was a car that slowed down when it spotted him. David thankfully got in. The two men got to chatting, casual things at first, where you headed, where you from, but the conversation turned more familiar, quicker than he was expecting. Still, David was thankful for the ride and especially the offer of pot, beer, and even a Valium, all of which he downed hungrily. On the road, you never know where your next break will come. As the effects of the drugs took hold, David's judgment blurred. But after weeks of worry and hunger, a little blur was welcomed. Conahan steered the car off the main road and into a deserted area, where he turned to David and made him an offer. How'd you like to make some cash today, David? He was listening. All you have to do is let me tie you naked to a tree and take a few pictures of you. It's kind of my thing. David thought for a minute. His thing? That's weird. I bet I could use the money. Reluctantly, David agrees, and Conahan starts the car back up. But when he pushes on the gas, the tires spin violently, taking the two men nowhere. They were stuck. David offers to flag down another car, which he manages to do, and the third man starts to help them out. Conahan and the stranger position themselves behind the trunk to push the car while David sits in the driver's seat, revving the engine. By this point, David is suspicious of Conahan's motives. Why does he want to tie me up? Why did he get weird when this stranger came to help us? And why is there a huge fucking knife in the back seat? Freaked out, David made a split decision and pressed down on the gas. The car lurched out of the mud and he didn't look back. All Conahan could do was watch with the stranger as David took off in his car, dust swirling in the air, mud on their clothes. A near escape for David, and one of the future nails in the coffin for Conahan. Who is this guy who likes to tie up men and take pictures of them, and how dangerous is he? Let's find out. Daniel Owen Conahan Jr. is born in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1954 and moves with his family to Punta Gorda, Florida when he's just a baby. As a teen, he's a loner. Big surprise. He discovers he's gay, which obviously upsets his parents who decide it's best to send him to a psychiatrist to fix him. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. And actually, probably, it fucked him up for life. He graduates from Miami Norland High in 1973 and joins the U.S. Navy in 1977, where he's stationed at Naval Station Great Lakes in Illinois. But he can't control his sexual urges very well, and he is nearly court-martialed for luring fellow naval officers off base to a motel and propositioning them for sex. But the district attorney can't get anyone to testify against him because basically they're ashamed. I mean, nobody wants to put their face with anything gay especially in that time, and especially in the Navy. In the Navy! Okay. And only a few months later, he gets discharged from the Navy when he tries to force a guy to have oral sex on... How do you force somebody to have oral sex on you? Like, either they're into it or they're not. I don't understand how... Like, yeah, suck it! But, (laughs) like, I'm in control of my mouth, not you. I don't... How... Like, you're just pushing their face down. (laughs) Just, okay... Come on! Okay. The Navy is like, uh, basically, you're more trouble than you're worth. Bye, Felicia. Anyway, so I guess he liked the general 
geographic area because he stays in Chicago for the next 13 years. And in 1993, his elderly parents, they need looking after, so he moves back down to Florida, where he becomes a licensed practical nurse and graduates top of his class from the Charlotte Vocational Technical Center. Ever notice how many of these killers are like nurses? Like, do you remember Gwen and Kathy, the lesbian lovers? And they were like killing all of it, you know? And then Donald Harvey, who we haven't covered yet, but I will. He was a really bad one too. So anyway, um, and he gets a job at the Charlotte Regional Medical Center in Punta Gorda. And basically, as soon as he gets to Florida, dead bodies start popping up all over the place. So between 1994 and 1997, six bodies are found in a 10-mile radius. All of them men, all of them nude. Four are posed in similar positions, and two have their genitals amputated. All of the men were thought to be transients, day laborers, drifters. Rope is involved in three of the killings. Two of the victims have the same angle of ligature marks on their legs. One of the bodies is completely dismembered, with parts scattered around 100 yards through the trees. So let's go through a few of these situations. In 1994... Conahan meets Stanley Burden from Fort Myers, Florida. He offers him $150 to take some nude bondage photos. Stan, like all the other men, does not have a lot of money, and he sees this as an opportunity to make a quick buck. So, the pair drive out to Conahan's favorite secluded wooded spot, and they get out of the car. They walk deeper into the dense woods to a tree. Conahan explains that for the money, Stan needs to undress completely and allow himself to be tied to a tree. Stan thinks it's weird, but he lets Conahan tie him up. Conahan starts taking pictures, but the shoot quickly takes a turn when Conahan starts sexually assaulting him orally, and then he tries to do it anally. Stan starts to struggle to get loose, yelling at Conahan that this isn't part of the deal and putting his back up against the tree to stop him. It was, after all, supposed to just be pictures. Hating the rejection, Conahan starts tightening the rope around Stan's neck. Stan starts to struggle harder and swear and tries to get loose, but Conahan keeps pulling and cutting off the circulation. But for whatever reason, Stan doesn't die. He won't die. Conahan, I don't know if he wasn't strong enough, if he had the angle wrong, what the fuck, but for 30 minutes, he tried to kill him. And Conahan finally gives up the fight, and he allows him to live. I mean, that's incredible. So Stan goes free, and Conahan drives off. Later, Stan would tell police that Conahan offered him money to keep him quiet. About can you imagine? He's like, "Hey, here's one hundred and fifty dollars. Let's go take naked pictures." And the guy's like, "Okay, I'm desperate. I'm like, okay, let's do it. I mean, just don't touch me, or whatever." And then he starts like molesting him and stuff and he gets upset and then he tries to kill him and then the the guy won't die. So then afterwards he's like, hey, sorry about trying to murder you. Here's another 50 bucks. Can we just keep this between us? Like, do you think he was actually going to keep his mouth shut? So anyway, he offers him money to keep quiet about the whole situation and Conahan would tell police later that they did engage in sexual activity for which he gave Stan a whole $20. But he denies the attempted murder, obviously. But that's later. Of course, Stan is considered a less than credible witness because he's currently serving 10 to 25 years in, chi- in prison for child molestation. And guess what? He still has the rope marks on his neck two years later. But I mean, I know that they're saying, and again, this is later in the story when 
he goes to the police and stuff, but he's in jail for child molestation. But like, I get that he's also a criminal, but does that make his story less credible? Like, how would, why would he make up that story? And also, how would Stan know the details of Conahan's MO, right? And and what does he have to gain by making up this story? So even though police were kind of like, I don't know, you're not credible. It's kind of like, yeah, but like, why would he make it up? Is my question. February 1st, 1994, a mutilated corpse is found in Punta Gorda. Having been outside in the elements for a month, it's severely decomposed and has rope burns on the skin and the genitalia is removed. The man is never identified. He's victim number one. Then, in 1995, a man named David Payton, he's the guy from the opening story with the car, he meets Conahan and gets in his car, they drink, they do drugs, they drive somewhere secluded... As we know, the car gets stuck, which ultimately saves David's life because he gets suspicious, sees a knife, and takes off in Conahan's car, which is pretty funny, actually. Like, (laughs) Conahan's such a loser. But he's caught and pleads guilty to car theft and goes to prison. I mean, Conahan gets his car back the very next day, so David really does not get very far with the car. January 1st. 1996, a dog belonging to a family in Northport comes home carrying a human skull. Can you imagine? Where's Spot? Oh, there he is. What does he have in his mouth? Oh my god, side story. My dog Maluma, his little girlfriend Bella, one time she came running out of the bushes with something in her mouth, and I swear to god we all thought it was a dildo. It was just the shape and the coloring and everything. And it was bouncing up and down and she was running and she was so happy. Like picture her like running in slow motion and this dildo like bouncing in her mouth. Anyway, it turned out to be a dog toy, but it really looked like a dildo. At least it wasn't a human skull, like in this case. So police are called to the scene and eventually they find much of a skeleton and they determine the genitalia had been cut out. The skeleton is not identified and this victim number two. The next month, in February 1996, William John Meloragno takes up Conahan's proposal for cash in exchange for being tied up naked and photographed. I mean, what could be the harm, right? But as soon as he's tied up, Conahan tries to sexually assault William, who manages to break loose of his bondage. Panicked, he races through the woods completely naked, his feet being cut on sharp rocks and his torso lacerated with the un- by the underbrush. But Conahan is too fast for William. He catches up to him, stabs him repeatedly, and then poses the corpse in a cross on the ground before removing his genitalia post-mortem. This is now a pattern the police are noticing. Bodies turning up in similar circumstances, in isolated wooded areas, crisscrossed by wild boar paths just inland from the Gulf Coast. John Meloragno would remain unidentified until June 1999. He is victim number three. Conahan picked his place carefully. It's in this area that the highway US 41 turns from busy commercial corridor to something much more rural. A grid of roads spider off in every direction to accommodate a yet-to-be-built housing development, making a perfect place to commit and hide a murder without fear of being disturbed. Two months later, in April 1996, Richard Montgomery is on cloud nine. He proudly tells his mother he's been offered $200 to pose for a few nude photos. Curious, his mom asked who would pay that kind of money for naked pictures, but Richard refuses to say. But in the same conversation, he does tell her that he's made a new friend, a man named Daniel Conahan, and he's a nurse living in Punta Gorda. Richard is a good-hearted, friendly guy who likes to drink, use drugs, 
and never feel tied down. Someone who is said to, quote, do anything if beer or money was involved. April 17th, Richard is visiting a friend south of Punta Gorda in a trailer park. It's an isolated area off Highway 41, freckled with trailers and properties with keep-out signs. The trailer he goes to is covered with stickers, advertising all types of beer. The screen door is broken, the window is cracked, and there's garbage everywhere, and a Kenny Rogers album peeking out from a cardboard box. Richard knew a lot of people in the trailer park, and a lot of them had criminal records. Case in point, neighbor Gary Mastin. He's a 21-year-old who lives in a nearby trailer. He would later tell investigators that victim Richard was visiting the trailer of Robert Whitaker the day he went missing. Okay, I'm going to put little uh, words in front of the... There's three guys here. There's Gary, Robert, and Richard. Gary's the neighbor, Robert owns the trailer, and Richard is the victim. And I'm going to refer to them as such for the next couple minutes. Victim Richard was visiting the trailer of Robert Whitaker the day he goes missing. He and Trailer Robert once lived together, and Trailer Robert's trailer was a meeting place of sorts to drink and play Dungeons and Dragons. Neighbor Gary says they'd sit all night drinking and playing the game. Conahan would buy weed from a former trailer mate of Trailer Robert's and is undoubtedly where he meets victim Richard for the first time. Neighbor Gary remembers that around 2 or 3 p.m. on April 16, 1996, victim Richard comes bursting into the trailer and announces he's about to make $300, so the amount keeps changing, uh, or something, in about half an hour. A suspicious trailer Robert asks if what he's doing is legal, to which victim Richard just smiles a big smile. Victim Richard bounces out the door, and the men never see him again. Richard's brother-in-law remembers seeing him headed in the direction in the direction of the lumber yard, which is where Conahan picks him up to go for a drive. Conahan later tells police he offered to pay Richard only $100 to engage in a nude photo shoot that included progressive bondage instead of the $300 that Richard tells his friends. But Conahan only withdraws $40 from the ATM that afternoon. Later, during investigations, Trailer Robert's brother, a cop in a nearby town, would wear a wire and question his brother secretly, but nothing comes of it. Can you imagine? Like, you own a trailer, and you know some guy who is kind of shady and was offered money for nude photos, and your brother, and you own your trailer, and then your brother is like a cop in a nearby town, and then they ask the brother to wear a wire to talk to Robert in his trailer and try to get information. Like, your brother is basically wearing a wire trying to get information from, like, I guess they're not close? Er? Also, later at the trial, the defense would accuse trailer Robert of changing his story, saying victim Richard and Conahan had met and that they hadn't met. Quote, not everything is straight and clear in my mind. But that's later. So back to now. The very day after victim Richard told the good news to his buddies that he's going to make a quick buck... Two Charlotte County utility engineers discover a human skull in the wooded hog trail region north across the river from Punta Gorda off Highway 41. When police arrive to search for the rest of the body, they also find the nude corpse of Richard lying on his back. His neck, wrist, and waist have bondage marks, and his penis is amputated post-mortem. The skull they found is obviously not Richard's, and when they search a bit more, they find a second victim who was killed in the last few days with rope burns on a tree and rope thrown into the woods. The torso that belongs to the skull is decomposed, but there's a clear tattoo that they can see on there, and the police broadcast it on the news to try to get leads. 
as to who this could possibly be. That night, a woman calls the cops saying that she has not seen her brother in a while. His name is Kenny Smith, and that looks like his tattoo. Police take Kenny's dental records, and they match the skull that they found. Can you imagine you're watching the news, and they're like, they put a tattoo on the screen, and they're like, if you have any information, and then you, it's your brother? Ugh. For the other body, which was Richard's, as we know, since it had only been one day, police are able to retrieve clear fingerprints, which match perfectly with Richard Montgomery. Kenny Smith and Richard Montgomery would be the fourth and fifth victims of what was now being called the Hog Trail Killings. An autopsy reveals Richard died of strangulation, was raped and mutilated, then tied up post-mortem, and Conahan had cut off Richard's genitals because he knew that if he left them, the authorities would trace his DNA to the body through saliva. At the grisly scene, investigators collect rope, a carpet pad used to cover Montgomery's body, a skull and torso belonging to Kenny Smith, a gray coat, and numerous combings. A canine dog trained to detect human scent was called to the scene and showed particular interest in a palm tree, which was flattened, otherwise damaged, on one side. Police would later discover that Conahan did a little shopping the day of Richard's murder. On his list were knives. Four separate purchases, in fact. Conahan explained that the knives are simply a purchase for his new apartment that he hadn't really found yet, but he was planning on finding one day and then moving into. Like, that's not even a good lie. He said that he could only afford one knife at a time, and that's why he bought them on four separate shopping trips. Conahan also bought rope, cutting pliers, and Polaroid film at a Punta Gorda Walmart. So, remember the guy that Conahan tried to um, assault on the tree, but then he gets away, and now he's in jail as a child molester? Okay. So, in jail, Stan sees the news. His name is Stan. Stan sees the news on the TV about the murders and recognizes the M.O. So he tells authorities that they should look for a guy named Conahan. Stan agrees to cooperate with police to help them capture this guy by being part of a sting operation to get information on him. So, FYI, Stan has since been released from prison and his current whereabouts are unknown. So it sounds like Stan helped them catch Conahan to which he probably got a lesser sentence, and now he's out, and now they don't know where he is, which is kind of weird because he's a sex offender. I thought you're supposed to keep track of where sex offenders are. Police feel the best way to get to the bottom of what's happening is to disguise themselves as transient men to try to lure the perp into their trap. So it doesn't take long for the undercover agents to start getting information that there is someone in the area who tries to pick up men for nude photos in the woods. After all, not every one of the men Conahan approaches agrees to the proposition, and when asked about it, they freely explain what happened and what this guy looks like. Right, of course. So obviously, Conahan is just driving around like the poorer neighborhoods and where um, gay hustlers are known to hang out and proposition people, and he's just asking everybody, basically, hey, you want to go take naked photos? Not everyone agrees. Obviously, we're hearing about the guys that did agree to it, um, but obviously not all of them do, which means that people have information for the undercover cops. Weeks go by, but the undercover police come up with nothing. That is until they get a tip-off from David Payton. Now, he's the guy from the beginning. He's the one that um, got suspicious, and he was in the car, and then he just drove off, leaving Conahan in the dust. Literally. 
So, David, not being a convicted pedophile like Stan, is taken more seriously by the police, and he's able to give them enough details that they know exactly who they should be looking for now, who, which is Daniel Conahan. So, police don't waste any time, and they place a mobile tracking device on his car. Quote, every time he left his house, they had six cars bracketing. Six cars? Like, he didn't notice? Uh, they had overhead aerial surveillance. They had his house under 24-hour surveillance with video cameras as well. An operation that included wired undercover officers posing as gay transients and mock homeless camps set up in the woods. I mean, this is like a big operation. Quote, during our 50 days of surveillance on him, we did have two separate instances where we had undercover detectives who posed as homeless men who stood on the side of US-41. And while they were wearing a wire, he actually did approach these two men about going to have them pose for nude in the woods. And that's said by Chuck Ellis, a spokesman for the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office. At one point, Conahan and his undercover officer were in the woods negotiating sex while officers were on the ground and in trees pointing guns at his head. The purpose of the undercover operation was to establish Conahan's M.O., which they do. And it's this. Investigators allege that Conahan has a sick sexual fantasy of trying of tying a man to a tree, raping him, and then killing him. They claim he prefers young, lean, blonde, white men. He would cruise trailer parks, charity services, panhandling areas, and gay pickup parks around Charlotte County and Fort Myers with a, quote, murder kit. In the murder kit is a knife, rope, tarp, gloves, and a Polaroid camera. He would pick up transients, hitchhikers, and hustlers for sex and nude bondage photos, plying them with alcohol and drugs. Conahan would lure his victims into the woods, where he'd bind them to trees and kill them. Then, posing and mutilating the body, he would often remove the genitals to prevent a DNA trace. An unemployed nurse at the time, investigators say Conahan had a taste for picking up drifters and a proclivity for sexual violence. Most victims were found naked with strangulation marks around their necks and lacking any form of ID whatsoever. Authorities speculated that Conahan, who once worked as a nurse, may have gotten rid of amputated body parts and other evidence via hospital biohazard disposal bags. And as for the undercover surveillance, quote, if there was an attempted murder, he wouldn't be sitting here. There would be no trial, indicating that officers uh, would have killed Conahan if he made any move to injure any of the undercover officers. Obviously... On at least one occasion, authorities sent in a marked police car to break up a liaison Conahan was having with a John in an isolated area because they feared for the man's safety. Then, I mean, they really got a lot of it. I mean, if you're surveilling this guy for 50 days, you have him literally talking to cops about tying them up for nude photos and offering them up. I mean, like, you got the guy. I mean, this is, it's him. How much, how much evidence do you need? I mean... Um, at the end of May 1996, police stop Conahan for a vehicle-related charge and take him to a hotel room set up for a videotaped interrogation. And while they have Conahan in the hotel room, sweating and answering questions, a search warrant is being executed for his apartment and vehicles. So basically, they stop him for this vehicle-related charge just to get him in one place so that they can start executing their search warrants of all of his properties and things. He's wearing a polo shirt and aviator glasses and chain-smoking nervously, saying things like, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, why me? What brought you to me? When a detective told Conahan, quote, Right now, you're a suspect. Conahan responded, Wow. 
that's it. <laughs> like it's, okay. Not exactly Shakespeare. Wow. After three hours of questioning, he leaves. But the search of his place is successful. They subpoena his credit cards and find evidence linking him with Stan. That's the guy that's in jail for child molestation. And Richard Montgomery, who is the one with the friends at the trailer park who's dead. So on to the arrest. On July 3rd, 1996, Conahan is arrested and taken to Lee County for the attempted murder of Stanley Burden. While he waits for his trial, police find yet another skeleton in Charlotte County on May 22, 1997. DNA would later identify the remains as William Charles Patton, who went missing in 1993. Then in February, Conahan is charged for the kidnapping, sexual battery, and murder of 21-year-old Richard Montgomery. In a handwritten statement to APBnews.com, Conahan denies that he commits the crimes, quote, this is not a case of a serial killer, but a corrupt criminal justice system. He continues, quote, the police and state attorney are big on talk, but short on proof. Authorities even start to look into other unsolved homicides with the same MO similar to the hog trail killings that occur prior to 1993 and in Chicago, where we know Conahan lived after the Navy kicked his ass out. Oh, and listen to this. There's an arrest affidavit filed by the Florida State Attorney's Office, which alleges that a lover of Conahan's from Chicago said that his, quote, main sexual fantasy, quote, was to cruise around, pick up hitchhikers and vagrants, take them to the woods, tie them to a tree, and screw them. So there's that. On to the trial. Conahan opts for a bench trial, which I looked it up for you. A bench trial is a trial by judge instead of jury. Interesting. The more you know. He wanted that because he thought that he would get convicted more easily by a conservative jury because he's gay and he admits to liking bondage. So he's like, I'm going to take my chance with one person over 12 people. If you think about it, wouldn't you have a better chance trying to convince the 12 people that you're guilty? Because don't they have to unanimously have the same verdict of guilt versus the judge who can just decide yay or nay? In the trial, it's described as, quote, so grisly and disturbing, it was considered, quote, not for the squeamish. Conahan takes the stand in the trial. He admits to soliciting Stan for oral sex in 94, but of course he denies trying to strangle him. On top of that, he denies ever meeting Richard Montgomery at all, saying this weird statement, quote, I have fantasized about bondage, but this is not my only fantasy. Doesn't that make him sound more guilty? Like, why would you say you fantasized about bondage, but it's not your only fantasy? Oh, I guess he's saying, I fantasize about it, but it doesn't mean that I do it. Like, I have other fantasies. It doesn't mean I just go out and do them. But to me, it kind of sounds like I fantasize about bondage, but I also have other fantasies, like killing people. Um, okay. And remember uh, Robert Whitaker? He's the guy that owned the trailer where everyone played Dungeons and Dragons. So he takes the stand and he testifies that Conahan came looking for um, victim Richard two months before the 21-year-old was found dead. So, yeah, they knew each other. Also, Richard's brother-in-law testifies that he saw Montgomery heading to the lumberyard the day he disappeared. Remember, I mentioned that before. And we know that that is where Conahan picked him up. Also, there's a female witness who says she saw victim Richard talking to a man who matches Conahan's description the day he was killed. I mean, this is a busy little town. Like, I thought they were in the bush in the middle of nowhere. It seems like everybody knows everybody's business. 
I guess that's what happens in small towns, right? That's why I live in a city. His defense attorney, Mark Alboran, tries to convince the jury that Conahan has a bad back. Oh, my back. Oh, it hurts. Oh, my God. I have a bad back. And it would be impossible for him to overpower these healthy young men. They also, well, yeah, and he's drugging them and they're drinking too. They also try to prove that it was other people that attacked Stan and Richard. Stan was living with another gay man at the time who they said was the culprit. I mean, this poor guy, this poor gay roommate of his is like minding his own business. And then meanwhile, in the court of law, they're like, it was him. Why? Because he's gay. Like, why are you pointing your finger at this poor, like gay roommate? Um, and in Richard's case, the defense tries to prove that he died of autoerotic asphyxiation. So basically, he killed himself by trying to like please himself by strangling. Conahan's defense says that the prosecution only has a collection of unreliable witnesses with no biological evidence, trying to portray the small town police as needing desperately to pin the murders on someone to close the case. Quote, the only thing you have at this point is a gay person who has admittedly been attracted to picking up people like Richard Montgomery, having casual sex with them and soliciting them, in some instances, with bondage, says Auburn for the defense. Quote, there is also no evidence at this point with the exception of one witness. The defense pointing out that the one witness, of course, is Stan, an imprisoned pedophile serving time in Ohio. So, again, trying to discredit him. The prosecution, for their part, introduces evidence from two undercover cops who posed as gay men. I would love to see what that looked like. Two cops posing as, like, gay hustlers or, like, gay transient men just out to make a quick... Like, what were they wearing? Like, I want to see pictures of that. I want to see what the cops wore that they thought, hey, this is going to make me look like a gay desperate transient who may be up for taking nude bondage photos also how do they act like were they were they did they overdo it in that sort of prancy lispy way or were they just being themselves did they femme it up a bit like i'm really because we're talking about cops these aren't actors it's not like did you see um on netflix halston if you watch halston um on Netflix right now. I mean, that's a good portrayal. That's a straight man portraying a gay man, but it's done so well. But he's an actor. These are cops. So it, I would love to see their portrayal of what a gay man in that situation would be like. The cops say that Conahan asked them to pose for naked pictures, which obviously he did. The prosecution also presents physical evidence that ties Conahan to the scene of the crime, namely fibers found on the victim that match fibers in Conahan's car and his bedroom, and a small paint chip found in the pubic hair of Richard Montgomery matches perfectly to the paint on a car registered to Conahan's father, a Mercury Capri. But can you imagine, like, he's using his dad's car to do these kinds of things? Like, hey, dad, I'm taking the car. <sighs> Ew. Like, use your own car. Weird psycho pervert apparently during the trial conahan shows little emotion obviously and not surprisingly except it says that he cries at one point when his ex-lover who has aids testified of the accused bonded fantasy okay so i just read that as it was given because the sentence reads except it says he cried at one point when his ex-lover bracket who has aids bracket testified of the accused bondage fantasy like why 
First of all, who has AIDS? Why is it in brackets? And also, is that an aside? Or it, does that have something to do with the case? Like, what do you... What do you <laughs> I don't understand why. And also, does he have full-blown AIDS? Or is it just HIV? Like, there's a big difference. I feel like oh, that was such a weird thing to put in that... Se- who has AIDS? Testified of the... Like, are you discrediting him? Or are you saying that that's why Conahan was crying did he just found out his ex-lover has aids and was it actually just hiv and this is just an ignorant article i don't there's i have a lot of questions about that okay conahan insists on his innocence but on august 17th 1999 judge william blackwell deliberates for 25 minutes during which time he considered mitigating factors like the testimony that conahan is polite appreciative and consent i mean who cares if he's polite like, aren't all of them polite and considerate and appreciate? Like, don't they put out that? You you think of serial killers. Isn't that the, okay, maybe not the Night Stalker because he was like a devil worshiper. But I mean, oftentimes they seem very polite and unassuming and appreciative and really nice. And that, that's the thing. That's what sucks you in. <laughs> I love that the judge is like taking that into consideration. Well, it looks like he did murder and rape these people, but sure is a nice fella. It doesn't make a difference because he finds Conahan guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and kidnapping. The charge of sexual battery is dropped due to the lack of evidence. Quote, it is obvious that during this ordeal, Montgomery was confined or Richard Montgomery was confined or imprisoned against his will. Such confinement against his will was for the obvious purpose of inflicting bodily harm upon the victim or terrorizing him. The crime was especially heinous, atrocious, and cruel. Judge Blackwell says, two medical examiners testify that many of Richard's wounds were inflicted before he died. Conahan freaks out and he moves the penalty phase of the trial to Collier County so that his sentence can be decided by a jury instead. So I didn't know about this. So it's different. You have your, you know, are you guilty sort of phase and then you have the penalty or the sentencing phase, which is like different. So he sees that, you know, he chose to have the uh, judge rule his decision instead of having the jur- a jury decide. And then he sees that the judge was like, mm, no, you're guilty. You're like a fucking freak and you're going to prison. So for the sentencing part, he's like, oh God, okay, that didn't work with the judge. I'm going to move this to a jury and maybe have more luck. Which he doesn't. Because a jury recommends the death penalty. <laughs> and the judge agrees, saying, quote, may God have mercy on your soul. After delivering his decision on Conahan's punishment, on December 10th. Sitting in the front row of the entire trial is Richard Montgomery's mom, Mary. Can you imagine? So she hears the verdict and sentence. She draws in a quick breath saying, quote, it was an indescribable feeling. How dare he kill my son and sit there like that? Quote, I hope he didn't suffer too much. I trust God wouldn't have let it go on too long. Assistant State Attorney Robert Lee and Rick Hobbs, the lead investigators in the case for the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, said after more than three years of gathering evidence against Conahan, they're glad it's over and pleased with the sentence. Quote, I'm never pleased when a death sentence is ordered. It's not a happy event. It's a sad one. In some cases, it's appropriate. And this is one. Before the trial, Mary, the mother of Richard Montgomery, has no idea of the extent of her son's injuries. She was just basically a witness in the trial brought in to testify. Quote, Conahan received the sentence he deserves here on earth. 
It's an answer to prayers. I thank God for directing this. It's a miracle my son's body was even found. Mary is hopeful that the families of the other victims get the same closure as she did from the verdict, even though Conahan is only suspected of committing the other Hogtrail murders. But basically, everybody knows that he did it. Mary continues, quote, Richard was working at getting his life back together. He was going back to school. He wanted to join the army. And to do that, he needed to get his high school diploma. He was my baby, but he didn't like me to call him that. Shackled at the wrists and ankles, Conahan barely reacts, but sheds a tear and takes a hard swallow. And then Richard's mom, Mary, after the trial, has to move uh, out of her town near Orlando to get away from all the memories of her son back home. She says of Richard, quote, He always gave his things away, his clothes, his food, everything but his cowboy boots, and I buried him in them. Richard Montgomery is buried in Royal Palm Memorial Garden. As for Conahan, Mary says she hopes he meets God. Quote, if he truly believes he has a right to walk in heaven with God's faithful, she said, he's one of God's children too. I mean, she's a lot more forgiving than me. I mean, she hopes that he finds God and goes to heaven and like whatever. And that's what she believes. God bless her. Yeah, I'm not that I'm like, just die, bitch. Kill him. Okay. As for the other murders, so as we know, Conahan is only tried for the murder of Richard Montgomery, but he's suspected of committing the other murders that make up the hog trail murders since the MO is pretty much a perfect match. The murders are all done between 94 and 97. The victims, again, are all found nude, no ID, similar position, same area, which P.S. is only 10 miles from where Conahan lived with his elderly parents. I mean... Again, imagine coming home after doing something like that. Oh, I'm home. Oh, mom smells delicious. What's for dinner? Your favorite mac and cheese. Come and sit down. Tell me about your day. Ugh. Unfortunately, there isn't enough evidence to convict Conahan for the other murders. While he's away in prison, five law enforcement agencies, including the state attorney's office, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, the Northport Police Department, and the Fort Myers Police Department, they form a task force to investigate the killings and all the bodies that they're finding. Because they keep finding bodies! The lead investigator, Detective Ricky Hobbs of the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office, said investigators believe that a single individual is responsible for all the killings. And that guy is Daniel Conahan Jr., the 45-year-old resident incarcerated at the Charlotte County Jail. But everyone watches as the task force tries to unravel the mystery. John Douglas, former FBI agent who received notoriety for pioneering the field of criminal profiling. He pioneered, that's pretty cool. He says, quote, to find eight bodies in one place is really bizarre, adding that the circumstances led him to believe that the remote area was, quote, a serial murderer graveyard. Of course, like I mentioned, they find more bodies in the Charlotte County area, similar to the hog trail killings. They find one in 2000. They find two more in 2001, and they find another one in 2002. Like, how many people did he kill? And on March 23rd, 2007, eight skulls and skeletal remains are found in the woods of Fort Myers, two of them later being identified as men who went missing in 1995. This is the largest discovery in Florida history. And that's saying something like, this is Florida, guys. So, as they always do, Conahan files appeals to try to overturn the, de the decision and delay the inevitable, which is his death. So, he tries putting... 
Okay, so I'm going to put this in layman's terms so we can all better understand because when I was reading it, I was like, this is a lot of like legal jargon and stuff. So he's filing appeals. He files one on January 24th, 2000. It's a direct appeal to the Florida Supreme Court. He says that the trial court fucked up in denying his ask for an acquittal because he felt that the state's circumstantial evidence wasn't enough. He also claims that the court fucked up when they did when they presented the aggravated circumstances, which I had to Google. Aggravating circumstances refers to factors that increase the severity or culpability of a criminal act. Typically, the presence of an aggravated circumstance will lead to a harsher penalty for a convicted criminal. So he said that they fucked up when they presented those circumstances. Lastly, he says that the prosecutor skewed the opinion of the court by making improper comments in the opening and closing remarks. The Florida Supreme Court agrees that the prosecutor did make some comments, but that they weren't actually bad enough to cause a mistrial. So they're like, big middle finger, fuck you, Conahan. Um, they affirm his convictions and sentence on January 16th. Gee, it only took three friggin' years to figure all this out. But he keeps trying... And he files a petition of writ of certiorari. <laughs> it's a weird word. Certiorari. A document which a losing party files with the Supreme Court asking them to review the decision of a lower court. So that's pretty straightforward. They deny him that. Then he files a motion with the circuit court. I mean, like, this asshole is just going to keep filing, 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 filing until they kill him, obviously. But they keep rejecting, 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 rejecting. Conahan is currently being held at Union Correctional Institution in Rayford, Florida. And so ends the murderous tale of Daniel Conahan. So on Murderpedia, I found this 20, like 20 page document that Daniel Conahan writes after the trial, just all of his grievances of what happened with the trial, why it was skewed, why the police are corrupt, wh how they were trying to pin it on him. So it's quite fascinating, but I'm going to I'm gonna read a little bit of it just so we can get his side of the story. I mean, this is in his word. It's in his handwriting, which, by the way, his handwriting is a bit like a sixth grade, a, a girl in sixth grade. I don't know why. It seems a little flouncy and... Um, but he's actually a good writer. He makes some spelling mistakes, but he's actually a good writer. But, um, okay. So the document is called information on my case. And like I said, he goes through details of the trial. So I'm going to read a few excerpts of this kind of manifesto that he wrote. Um, this is, these are all, this is all direct from the thing. Okay. In one part, he's talking about Stan. He writes, quote, Mr. Burden, Stan, stated that on August 15th, 94, I tried to kill him. This is not so. Mr. Burden is a self-admitted habitual liar, has, as stated in his police interviews, as well as his testimony in court. Mr. Burden is currently serving a 10 to 25 year sentence in another state for child molestation. In one of his three inconsistent police interviews taken by detectives at prison, the detectives come right out and tell Mr. Burden, quote, you scratch our back and we will scratch yours. So that's straight from the manifesto. Then in this other part, he continues later on, quote, contrary to the Florida rules of criminal procedure, the def I mean, like this guy probably, I mean, very most probably knew absolutely zero about the criminal justice system before this. Easy for you to say, Patrick. Um, but having been in it for years and years and being represented, it's it's amazing how much 
by osmosis, you just absorb the lingo and the terms. And he sounds like a lawyer when he writes this because he's just been around this for years and years. So he writes, quote, contrary to the Florida rules of criminal procedure, the defense became aware of vital information withheld by case agent Ricky Hobbs and the state concerning Mr. Richard Montgomery's uncle, a James Bauman. It seems Mr. Bauman was a principal in a murder case involving a man, Mr. Reamers, who had been brutally murdered in an area similar to and mutilated in a similar manner as Richard Montgomery. Mr. Reamer's penis had been severed and Mr. Bauman apparently participated in the mutilation. Mr. Bauman had received immunity for his testimony about the murder and concerning the other co-defendants in that crime. It was approximately two years after I was arrested when I found out about Mr. Bowman, the uncle of Richard Montgomery, and his involvement in the uncanny similar mutilation murder. They let the real murderer, Mr. Bauman, the uncle of the victim in my case, go on a plea bargain as a result were, and as a result were directly responsible for those six deaths. So, if you didn't really understand that. Basically, Conahan is saying that it came to his attention that Richard Montgomery, who, was, who he was tried and convicted, and he's on death row for the murder of, he had an uncle named... Uh, James Bauman. James Bauman was a principal suspect in a previous murder of a guy named Mr. Reamers who was brutally murdered and his genitals had been removed. Same M.O. And James Bauman was the uncle of Richard Montgomery. So basically what Conahan is saying is that Richard Montgomery was killed by his uncle is basically what he's saying in this because he's already been part of a, a, a whole case and drama around uh, a mur at least one murder with the exact same mo so that is a little suspicious i'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie so anyway that's just a couple ex excerpts from the if you want you can go to murderpedia and you can read the entire thing it's goes on and on and on and it's very detailed um but it's basically just conahan defending himself uh and the decisions of the court um Another thing I wanted to bring up is that I found through a search on YouTube um, and a story on Conahan was this website called murderauction.com. If you go to murderauction.com, what they do is they auction off. It's kind of like an eBay type of situation. Like people put bids on things that murderers owned slash used. Like serial killers, memorabilia. Like if you're a collector of things you can go to murderauction.com in this case they actually have conahan's car they have a razor they have some well, quote-unquote art i mean i guess he does like finger painting and stuff um and these are all things that you can buy on the site so the owner of the site his name is william harder and he's come under you know scrutiny because people are like this is wrong this is bad you're profiting off of other people's grief of uh, and you're profiting off of tragedy basically and then his response is well people write books on these tragedies they make movies on these tragedies and they profit from it so what's the difference i just have a website where there's memorabilia if you want to call it that or just things that serial killers and murderers and criminals use slashed owned at some point that somebody out there would want to own 
because people would want to own things like that. So I think he's not wrong. Um, I mean, I don't want to drive around in the car that Conahan used to pick up transient men to drive them to their deaths. But maybe you do. So you can go to murderauction.com. Well, that's what I have for today. I'll see you in the next episode of True Gay Crime. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to find the True Gay Crime Facebook page and follow us on Instagram at True Gay Crime. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have an LGBTQ crime story from your city? You can send your story to truegaycrime at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode of the show. Did you know you can subscribe, rate, and review True Gay Crime on Apple Podcasts? It would mean everything to me if you did because it helps me create content you like and it lets Apple know to share it with more people. Thank you for listening. And remember, always look behind you, lock your doors, tell someone where you're going, and look out for each other. Why can't we all just get along?